Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to two places, Acts chapter 9, where we left off last week, and Galatians chapter 1, which you'll discover will fill in a lot of gaps that are created in Acts chapter 9. So Acts 9 and Galatians 1, those are the places you're going to be turning back and forth to this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, the psalmist said, Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. Thank you for this time and place where we, your people, are together and we're in unity. One spirit, one heart, looking for your truth and your presence, your resources from your word. Grace us, Lord, in a powerful way this morning as you, by your spirit, we trust, would teach us. Thank you for the season and the opportunity we have to reach out our hands and arms to people who need to experience your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Great people are not born. Great people are made. Great people are people who have been shaped by life's circumstances that are permitted by God. As one person put it, Life is only about 20% of what actually happens to you, and it's 80% of how you respond to what happens to you. Ted Engstrom gives some examples of that. In one of his books, he writes, If you cripple him, you'll have a Sir Walter Scott. Lock him in a prison, and you have a John Bunyan. Bury him in the snows of Valley Forge, you have a George Washington. Raise him in abject poverty and you have an Abraham Lincoln. Strike him down with infantile paralysis and he becomes a Franklin Roosevelt. Burn him so severely that the doctors say he'll never walk again and you have a Glenn Cunningham who set the world's one-mile record in 1934. Deafen him and you have a Ludwig von Beethoven. Have him or her born black in a society filled with racial discrimination. And you have a Booker T. Washington, a Marian Anderson, a George Washington Carver. Call him a slow learner, retarded, and write him off as uneducable. And you have an Albert Einstein. All of these people mentioned by Ted Engstrom were great people. But they were great because of how they responded to the adversity, the suffering, the beatings that came their way. That's why I say great people aren't born. They're made. They have been shaped. In fact, it is those circumstances that become the very ingredients and the answer to why we call them great. If you walk on a shoreline, you discover that the sharpest rocks are in the quiet coves. The really good ones, the smooth ones, are the ones that have been beaten by the waves that come incessantly in. The title of this message 
is surprising ingredients for greatness. I say they're surprising ingredients for this reason. Most people, when they think of the life of Paul the Apostle, they think of a few episodes. They think, first of all, of the Damascus Road experience. That was dramatic. Uh, They think certainly of his missionary journeys. Those were exciting. They might go to the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, which was pivotal. And then they would take you to his imprisonment in Rome, which was influential. But few, if any, will talk about a period of time that we're going to look at today. A long period of time. In fact, until we understand this period of time, I doubt we're really going to understand the man or his writings or what made him so great. It's a period of time that is about 10 years. I'm guessing at that one, and I'll explain as we go. About 10 years that are covered in Acts 9 between verses 23 and 31. There are three experiences in those 10 years. And they're in your outline. The first is privacy. For a period of time, Saul was in seclusion, private time. Second was difficulty. In getting back into the mainstream, he had some bumps. So privacy, difficulty. And the third is obscurity. These are the three ingredients that made him great. One journalist by the name of Walter Lippmann years ago wrote, No saint, no hero, no discoverer, no prophet, no leader ever did his work cheaply and easily, comfortably or painlessly. And no people was ever great which did not pass through the valley of the shadow of death on its way to greatness. So let's start where we should at the beginning, and that is verse 23, with the first experience that I'm calling privacy. Now you're going to notice that we're, we're going over some verses we read over last week, but we have to do it to get it all in chronological perspective. So we begin with privacy. And notice how verse 23 begins. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Well, it turns out that the many days were about a thousand days. Three years Three years period of time is between verse 22 and 23. That's the gap that we find. Here's the chronology. Saul is in Damascus. He's been converted. He goes into the synagogues. But then he leaves for three years, many days. Then he comes back to Damascus. Where'd he go? What was he doing? Turn with me to Galatians 1 and he will tell you himself. This is where the gap filling comes in. Now we'll pick it up in Galatians chapter 1 with Paul's own testimony in verse 13. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb, that's election, and called me through his grace, that's conversion. When did God call him through his grace? Damascus Road. Saul, Saul, who are you, Lord? 
That's the point in time and space that he was called in his experience. So when it pleased God to separate me from my mother's womb, called me through His grace, to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Now notice this. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, in other words, he's starting from his conversion, The time he left Jerusalem, went up to Damascus. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. So we take Galatians 1 and Acts 9, we sandwich them together, and we start understanding what happened. He gets miraculously, sensationally transformed on the Damascus road, goes into the synagogue, starts preaching after he's healed from his blindness, leaves, comes back, Three years later, back into Damascus, and that's the after many days in verse 23. So, in, in one week, that's all it took, in less probably than a week, a few days, Saul of Tarsus was utterly, totally transformed. But, it's going to take God a lot more time to really deal with some deep issues in his life. Saul has some preparation to do. And it's this time of preparation in private that is one of the secrets to his longevity. And where does he go? He says he went to Arabia. Don't think Saudi Arabia. Think ancient Nabataean Arabia. It stretches about 100 miles south of Damascus. goes all the way down to Mount Sinai. In fact, I don't know exactly where he went, but I like to think he went to Mount Sinai or spent a lot of time down in that barren wasteland inhabited by no one except a few Bedouin tribes, even to this day. What was he doing during those three years, those private years? Well, we're not told specifically. It's only mentioned once, and that's by Paul in Galatians 1. Some of the early church fathers said that he was a missionary to those Bedouin tribes. Another source believes that he was running from Jewish leaders who were trying to reconvert him back to his standard form of Judaism. They all sound plausible. The only problem is those aren't mentioned in the Bible at all. And it would seem that if either of those were true, there would have been some mention of it. Not necessarily, but I'm thinking probably. What we are told is this, and you'll notice this. He said in verse 16 of Galatians 1, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. I didn't talk to people about this. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem. Now, he does eventually, but not immediately. To those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia. Did you get that? I didn't confer with people. I went to Arabia. As if to say, my conference was with God himself. It was alone time. It was downtime. It was a time for a long time where I could ponder grace, law, theology, my upbringing, all the things that I had to wrestle with, I did during that time. Now, maybe he was in the shadow of Mount Sinai. After all, this guy tried to keep the law. In fact, remember in Philippians, he said, I kept the law perfectly. 
I can see him down, and I've been at the base and on top of Mount Sinai, and I can, I can see him there. I can imagine him imagining Moses receiving the law, and here's Paul learning about grace. He's forging what he's going to say in Romans and Galatians. And the three-year stint is very interesting to me because how many years did the apostles have with Jesus on earth? Three years. Sort of like his own personal compensation. His own private three years with the Lord. Charles Ryrie writes, In Arabia he was alone with God. He was thinking through the implications of the encounter with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. James Montgomery Boyce adds, The replacement of his Jewish world and life view by a Christian theology would have been the work of more than a long weekend. Paul went into Arabia to think and study rather than to preach. I agree with him. Paul was very learned, very schooled, very sharp, but he needed another degree. The boy needed a BSD. Backside of the desert degree. And I've discovered something in the Bible. Some of the Bible's greatest heroes had BSDs, backside of the desert degrees. Moses did. Moses was trained in Egyptian stuff. He was raised in a privileged home. He knew leadership. He was being groomed for the throne. God took him out in the desert as a sheep herder for 40 years. That's a long education. 40 years. And God called him when he was 80. You heard me right. His ministry started when he was 80 years old. He needed that desert degree first. David got that degree. You know about how he killed Goliath. But remember, 10 to 15 years after he killed Goliath, he went out to the desert because he was chased by King Saul. And he was in the wilderness of Paran and in Gedi and all of these places running from him. Joseph got a degree like that. He was sold into slavery by his brothers down in Egypt. He was in a prison and then another prison because of what happened with Potiphar. He was falsely accused. But it was there in private where he learned some things he couldn't learn anywhere else. Then there was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist went down into the desert. You remember John the Baptist. He was the Orkin man of the New Testament. The bug exterminator. He ate him. And it was down out in the desert where alone with God, he understood God's purpose for himself as well as Messiah. So there's Paul out in Arabia, private time for three years. Also, if there was any pride in Saul of Tarsus, Three years would help deflate that pride. Now, there was pride, wasn't there? Isn't that what Paul said in in Philippians? How that he bragged about his own righteousness, and he was a Pharisee, and he was a law keeper. He boasted in that. Three years out in the desert (sighs) would deflate the tires. He writes about that in Philippians 3. He says, I once thought all these things were so very important But I now consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I may have Christ. 
When did that happen? When did he ever come to a point where he evaluated his life and his upbringing and what was important to him and all of that pride-based stuff and say, I don't need that anymore? I think during this three-year crash course in the desert, everything changed. Everything changed inside of him. Did you see the movie Cast Away with Tom Hanks? There wasn't a whole lot of dialogue in that movie. There was a whole lot of emotion. Tom Hanks plays a FedEx executive who's on an airplane that goes into trouble and crashes in the Pacific and he gets washed up on an island inhabited only by Tom Hanks. So he has no one to talk to except a volleyball he calls Wilson. And the deep struggles of his life are shown in the film. Again, not much dialogue, but a lot of emotion as he struggles with who he really is and what is life all about. Now, back home, they've already had his funeral service. They think he's dead, but he's alive for four years in private seclusion on an island. By the time he gets back, he discovers something. He discovers he doesn't fit in anymore into that culture. He sees life differently. He's a changed man. Arabia was Paul's castaway experience. Paul, Saul, became God's castaway for three years in the middle of nowhere. Now listen carefully. This private time is precisely the time we minimize or regard as not very important. For some reason, we're not big on preparation. We're big on activity. Come on, get busy now. Do something now. I don't think God is. I think God is all about preparing a person for longevity. You think about Jesus' life. He began his ministry when he was how old? 30. How long was his public ministry? Three, three and a half years at best. Well, that means there were 30 years of time prior to the three years of active ministry. That's a 10 to 1 ratio, if I got it right. But we minimize the preparation. We maximize the activity. One of the first things that made this man great was private alone time. Baseball players call it dugout time. Nobody likes the dugout. I want to be out in the field. You You will be, but just stay in the dugout. Watch for a while. Second experience is difficulty. From privacy to difficulty. Now we go back to verse 23 of Acts chapter 9 and we see what happens. He's been in Damascus. He leaves. Three years later he comes back. And that's what it means by after many days were passed. Now he's back. The Jews plotted to kill him. That's difficult. I don't know if you know what it's like to have a contract out in your life. I don't. I know Franklin Graham has a contract out in his life. You knew that, right? The Muslims call it a fatwa. If you find him and he's alone, kill him. That's Saul of Tarsus. But their plot became known to Saul. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him down and led him down through the wall in a large basket. This is difficult. And Saul, when he had come to Jerusalem, tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him and didn't believe that he was a disciple. That's difficult. 
push the pause button in your mind. Go back to the time right after his conversion when Jesus tells him what he can expect in his life. Ananias is the messenger. You go tell Paul, you go tell Saul that I've chosen him and tell him how many things he must suffer. Suffer. So he's private for three years. He comes back and immediately the suffering begins. He, he hits the Damascus streets running, right? He's a lean, mean preaching machine at this point. And he's out and he's preaching like he always has before. He's thinking, these three years have paid off. I'm so on fire. Yeah, you're burning the town down with your fire. They want to kill him. And they, the disciples put him in a basket made out of rope, probably. A basket fish was brought up into the city with or garbage was let out of the city in. Now, you could never have gotten that proud rabbi in a garbage basket five years prior. Can you see him now crawling into that little rope basket, being led over a wall, running for his life, going to Jerusalem, thinking, I'll be safe there. There's brothers there. They know me there. They've heard what's gone on in my life there. He gets there. And they go, "Uh, you can't join our church. You're a lightning rod. You're a hard guy to have around. So from persecution from unbelievers to hesitation with believers. Ouch. Got a question for you. Why? Why did this happen? And there are several reasons. First and obviously is is the gospel is offensive. I hope you know that. The true, authentic New Testament gospel has an offensive message. When you tell people that you will be alienated from God forever in hell unless you receive Christ... That doesn't go over well with a lot of people. Number two, religious people have the hardest time with that message. Did you know that? Religious people think, I don't need to hear that. I'm already religious. I got it all together. I don't need anything more than that. But here's my real question. Why, after three years of isolation, three years of preparation, does Paul start his ministry? And it seems to fail. He's not received in Damascus. He's not received in Jerusalem. Here's my take on it. If Paul would have hit the ground in Damascus and had instant success and gone to Jerusalem and had bigger success, he could have become insufferably proud. Those kind of things tend to inflate heads quickly. Everything he touches would turn to gold. That doesn't happen. One person put it this way, God ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. He hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. That's what God is doing. You're watching God do that with Saul. Hammering him. That's why in 2 Corinthians 11 he goes, okay, here is my list of Uh, why I'm qualified to be in the ministry. I've been beaten up more than anybody else I know. I've been misunderstood more than anybody else I know. I've been shipwrecked. He lists them all as his qualifications. And here's the point I want to make. Great lives are shaped by great difficulties. If you think you can buy a book in the bookstore, uh, How to Be a Great Person, 
And if there's not a chapter in there about how to withstand getting beat up, you'll never be great. Great lives are shaped by great difficulties. James said it. The testing of your faith develops you, produces perseverance. If you take ordinary corn and put it in a skillet and turn up the heat 400 degrees, you know what will happen to the corn? It'll, it'll shrivel up. It'll harden. You put popcorn in the skillet, same skillet. Turn it up to 400 degrees. Gas in the kernel expands and breaks through the hard shell. And that little piece of popcorn becomes enlarged and a delight. And that's what happens with people. With some people, you turn the heat up and they become shriveled, hardened, worse. You turn the heat up on others, they become enlarged. They become bigger. They become better. They become more influential. They become a delight to others. Paul was misunderstood. Paul was vilified. Paul was criticized. And that's all preparation for greatness. But watch this. Same chapter, verse 27. In the midst of the difficulty, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Barnabas means son of encouragement. Remember him. You'll see him again next week. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the midst of a difficulty, Barnabas shows up, puts his reputation on the line, grabs Paul by the arm, that's what the language implies, takes him by the hand, and brings him into the company of Peter and James, the apostles, and the church at Jerusalem, and basically says, I can vouch for this guy. He's the real deal. He's the genuine article. This boy's been converted. He can become a member of our community. The reason Barnabas gave Saul the right hand of fellowship is this. Barnabas believed God can change anybody. But it takes a person, a friend, to stand with you. I've always loved the definition of a friend produced in an English newspaper some years back. It was actually a contest. They wanted to find what their readership defined friendship as. And the definition that won the prize was this. A friend is someone who comes in when the rest of the world has gone out. The rest of the world was leaving Paul. He's a lightning rod. Don't trust him. Get him out of here. Barnabas came in when everybody else left. Somebody once said, faults are thick where love is thin. But faults are thin where love is thick. We need a lot of thick love. The kind of love that would put arms around people who are a little sketchy, a little on the edge, and say, come on in. You belong here. You're part of us. I have so loved the ministry of this fellowship that has reached out to the jails and the detention center and taken people and discipled them and then after they get out, bring them in and train them up saying, you know what? You belong here. You fit here. We're all a bunch of misfits. Join the crowd. 
We're all foolish things of the world transformed by Christ. Those are Barnabas's. You know what? When I get to heaven, I can't wait to meet Barnabas. I've always thought that. I read about him, and, and he's one of the intriguing characters of the Bible. No, they're, they're standard people I can't wait to meet. I've got to meet Abraham. He's the father of faith. You know, can't wait to meet Noah. I want to hear all about the boat ride. <laughs> want to hang out with Moses. I want to see if he really looked like Charlton Heston. Or, <laughs> But to meet Barnabas, he was the guy with the biggest heart in the New Testament church. He'd be a lot of fun to spend... I don't know, two, three, four thousand years with in heaven. So privacy and difficulty were two ingredients that made him great. Here's the third, obscurity. Obscurity. Look at verse 29. He, Paul, spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. Remember them? That was the synagogue that Stephen was preaching in that day when Saul heard him. Saul's back there. But they attempted to kill him. There it is again. Trouble follows him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Where's Tarsus? In Cilicia. That's home. That's where he came from. That's where he was born and raised. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. So... He goes back home to his family, to his Jewish community. <laughs> That's just a gas to think about. They'd say, oh, Saul, man, we haven't seen you in a long time. What's been going on in your life? And then he unloads all about what happened on the Damascus Road in Arabia. And I've rethought this thing. And let me tell you about Jesus Christ. That was a shock to that community. It's like my friend Marty Getz. He's a piano player and leads worship. And he was raised in a Jewish home, bar mitzvah in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, his parents still Jewish. He'll often say at a concert, you know, Jewish mothers would love to say, my son the doctor or my son the lawyer. And he says, my mom has to say, my son the gospel singer. <laughs> Paul's mom had to say, my son, once rabbi, now apostle to the Gentiles. Oof. But he's back in Tarsus, back home. Interesting to me, before Paul could ever be used significantly by God, he had to first face himself alone. Before Paul could ever be used by God significantly, he had to face his enemies. Before Paul could ever be used significantly by God, he had to face his own family. Remember the kid who was demon-possessed in the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus delivers him, and the kid goes, I'm following you now, and Jesus says, no, you're not. And Jesus wouldn't let him follow him. He said, you go back home, and you tell people all the good things that I've done. Okay, so Arabia, three years, Damascus and Jerusalem, I don't know, a few weeks, months, we don't know. And now Tarsus, you know how long he was in Tarsus? Get this. He was in Tarsus, chronologically, if you follow it, every scholar will tell you, between five and seven years. Did you put the math together? Three years plus a few months plus seven years, that's ten plus years 
after he's saved, before he does anything in terms of a missionary journey or public known ministry. That's preparation. Seven years of obscurity. you got to understand, that was hard. That was hard. Jesus appeared to him personally and said, you're going to bear my name before kings and Gentiles and the children of Israel. So he's kind of waiting around on that one. Okay, it's been a few years waiting to get that appointment with my first king. Doesn't happen. This was hard. He's ready for great ministry, but there's seven years of obscurity. Now, what was he doing in Tarsus during those years? F.B. Meyer says he went back to being a tent maker, maybe, partially, but that's not the total package. He tells us what he was doing. Go back to Galatians 1, and we'll close our study this morning here. He says, After three years I went up to Jerusalem, verse 18, to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And Cilicia is where Tarsus is located. That's him going back home in Acts 9. And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea who were in Christ. I left. I was a firebrand. I was a lightning rod. They shipped me off to Tarsus. They didn't see me anymore. But they were hearing only that he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy and they glorified God in me. Now we know what he was doing for seven years. He was preaching. He was in the synagogues. He was out in the streets. He was doing what he will always be doing on his missionary journeys. He's working while he's waiting in obscurity. Folks, we make a mistake. We do it a lot. We do it a lot in the evangelical world. And here's the mistake. We find someone who's unusually gifted or is a celebrity. And as soon as we get our hands on them, we we place them in a position of prominence. We can destroy them. Let's say it's a celebrity. Let's go there. And it's a movie star or a singer, and everybody knows them, and they have a conversion experience. We put our mitts on them. We go, now you got to go out in the circuit, and you got to tell everybody about the gospel. No, no, a thousand times no. They need an Arabia first. They need a Damascus and a Jerusalem, and they need a time in obscurity in Tarsus. Don't put them out there too quick. It'll ruin them. In fact, Paul will write to Timothy, and he says, when you pick up a leader, and you put a leader in prominent position, don't get a novice. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall under the same condemnation as the devil. Folks, it takes time to build a life stable enough to influence the kind of people that Paul influenced. You remember in the Old Testament when the Jews came back from captivity and they started rebuilding their temple and they got a few stones of the foundation on it and everybody celebrated. Except there were people in the crowd that remembered the old temple and they started weeping out loud, crying, Oh, this is horrible. This isn't what it used to be like. It was so much better back then. They're whiners. 
complainers. And so God sends Zechariah the prophet and says to them, Do not despise these small beginnings. Or as the New King James puts it, Don't despise the days of small things. Arabia, small things. Tarsus, small beginnings. Don't despise it. Ten years of it before he's prepared. I want to close with a story. Three trees wanted to be great. Now you just have to stretch your imagination. Imagine trees that can think and talk. The first tree said, I want to be a treasure chest and hold the world's greatest treasure. The second tree said, I want to be a great ship sailing the oceans, traveling the seas and carrying mighty kings. The third tree said, I want to stay on this mountain and be so tall that the people down below will raise up their eyes to heaven and think of God. Well, years passed and all three trees grew in obscurity until one day a woodsman came down and cut them all down. And the first tree he made into a feed box for animals and the first tree's dreams were shattered. The second tree was made into a small boat and placed on a little lake. And the second tree's dreams were shattered. The third tree was cut in pieces, laid in a lumber yard. And the third tree's dreams were shattered. Many, many days and nights passed. And all three forgot their dreams. But one night, golden starlight poured over the first tree as a young woman placed her newborn baby in the feed box. Suddenly, the first tree knew he was holding the greatest treasure in all the world. On another night, a tired traveler and friends crowded into the little fishing boat and sailed out onto the lake. A thundering storm arose. The little tree shuddered, unsure if he had the strength to carry the passengers safely through to the other side. The tired man awakened, stood up, stretched out his hand and said, Peace, be still. And the storm stopped. Suddenly, the second tree knew he was carrying the king of heaven and earth. And one Friday morning, the third tree was startled when her beams were yanked from the forgotten woodpile. She flinched as she was carried through an angry, jeering crowd she shuddered as the soldiers nailed a man's hands to her. She felt ugly and harsh and cruel. But on Sunday morning, when the sun arose and the earth trembled with joy beneath her, the third tree knew that God's love had changed everything and that every time people thought of the third tree, they would think of God. And that was better than being the tallest tree in the world. I'm going to ask you to do something this week. Here's your homework. I'm going to ask you to deliberately slow your life down. I know, that sounds, that's like the stupidest thing you've ever heard to say at Christmas time. When we speed up even more than the rest of the year, right? But I want to say this. We live in a society that is driven... You hear that term, driven, driven, driven. 
I'm asking you not to be driven anymore. To be led. There's a difference between being driven and led. You can be driven by a lot of things. You can be led by the Holy Spirit. When I say slow down, I'm not saying take a year sabbatical, though that does sound really good, doesn't it? Or even a five-month vacation. I'm not asking you to do that. That's unrealistic for most all of us. But how about slow down your day enough to, to just carve out some private time? It doesn't matter what, when in the day or the week it is. And maybe at the end of a week or at the end of a month, it's a day of evaluation. Where you spend the day without a lot of input. No TV, no radio. Take long walks. And uh, that's your Arabia. You're reprioritizing what God's leading you to do. Are you hearing right? Tune the radio dial to hear frequency, you know, KHVN, K-Heaven, whatever it is. You're listening to Him. Slow down enough to hear His voice. And don't despise the days of small things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that um, we as Your people would be those who get good at hearing Your voice. Jesus said, My sheep hear My voice. That's the voice we want to hear. There are so many other voices driving us, influencing us in the form of radio and television and newspapers and even even acquaintances. We want to be led, Lord, carried along so that no matter where we are, whether it's Arabia or Damascus, Jerusalem, Tarsus, or even in the middle of a missionary journey being greatly used, We're always hearing and being led. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.